Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the great privilege it is to be able to honour you by hearing your voice this morning. Lord, we thank you that you have preserved your word down through the centuries so that we have it today. But Lord, we know that we need your Holy Spirit's guidance, his illumination of your word if we are to understand it this morning. And so, Lord, we ask as we look at your Son, Jesus Christ, that your Spirit would be working in our hearts and that we would marvel at him and trust him because your Spirit is changing us to be like him. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through John chapter 6, and we've been looking at the works of Jesus in John chapter 6, and particularly the chapter began with Jesus feeding the 5,000. He took a small amount of food and turned it into a lot of food and was a great blessing to all those people who were gathered. And then we saw that he walked on the water from uh, verse 16 of John chapter 6, and we saw the impact that that had upon his disciples. And then last time we were together, we looked at how this crowd continued to follow Jesus around. And we saw that the reason why they were following Jesus around was primarily because they wanted further food from Jesus. They thought they were onto a good thing. Here's a man that can provide food at the drop of a hat. Uh, he can continue to provide this food in great abundance. And so they were following him around for this. And Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 26. He says, I tell you the truth, you were looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And now between Jesus and the crowd begins this dialogue where they're going to ask a few questions and then Jesus is going to respond. And we looked at some of that last week where the crowd asks him in verse 28, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus responded by saying that they need to believe in him. And then they asked for a miraculous sign. And we saw that in verse 30 of John chapter 6. And he said that they should look to him as the true bread of life. And that is in verse 32 and verse 33 of John chapter 6. And so today we come to verse 34, where the crowd continues to speak to Jesus and they have something to ask him. And so I encourage you, if you've got a Bible there, open it up to page 1056, and we'll be looking at John chapter 6, verse 34, down to verse 40. We'll be looking at this question that the crowd poses to Jesus, and then Jesus' response to that question, that demand that they make. What is that? Well, it says there in verse 34, Sir, they said... From now on, give us this bread. Jesus has spoken about a bread of life, that uh, the bread of God that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, that sounds pretty good. Please give us that bread. And so Jesus then explains how you receive the bread of life, what the bread of life is and how you receive it. And that's what we'll be looking at this morning. We'll be looking at this question that we sometimes ask about Jesus and ask, how can we have eternal life? How can we have the bread of life, the bread that gives eternal life, as opposed to the bread of this world, which only sustains us for a short time? So how do you receive the bread of life? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 35, John chapter 6, verse 35, it says, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. How do you have the bread of life? Well, it's by coming to Jesus. It's coming to the one who is the bread of life. What does it mean to come to Jesus? How do you come to Jesus? 
Well, the answer is given to us in the text. It says, he who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. How do you come to Jesus? It's paralleled there with belief. If you come to Jesus, then you believe in Jesus. And there's other metaphors that are given as to what belief looks like as well in this same text. We see coming is paralleled with believing. We see that looking in verse 40 is paralleled with believing as well. So in verse 40 it says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son, looks to the bread of life, and believes in him shall have eternal life and will raise him up at the last day. What are you to do? You're to come to Jesus. What are you to do? You're to look to Jesus. And how do you do that? Well, it's by believing in Jesus. When it says come to Jesus, it says believe in Jesus. When it says look to Jesus, it says believe in Jesus. And then later on we'll see that another metaphor is used in this chapter. We won't look at it today. The next time I preach, Lord willing, I'll look at it, that we're meant to eat of Jesus. We're meant to eat the bread of life as well, which is another metaphor for the fact that we need to trust in Jesus. We're meant to believe in Jesus. What does it mean to believe? Well, it means that you're to have faith, that you're to trust, a total handing over to someone else. And that's what you need to do if you want to have eternal life. If you want to have eternal life, then you must come to Jesus and trust in him. You must believe in him. And it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. It matters now what you do today, whether you trust in him. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't say, if you're good and believe in him, you will have eternal life. It ultimately doesn't matter how bad you've been. What matters is, do you trust in Jesus Christ? Because that's what the text says. Look with me at verse 37 of John chapter 6. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Whoever comes. How do you have eternal life? Is simply by coming to Jesus in faith. Whoever comes. It doesn't say whoever is good and comes. It says whoever is come, whoever comes will have eternal life. And verse 40 says the same thing. It says, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It doesn't say, For my Father's will is that everyone who is a good person and looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life. No, it's everyone who looks. Everyone who believes. And so that's what you need to do. You need to have faith in Christ if you are to have eternal life. And that faith is a trust, a belief in that person. And that means it's a total handing over of the matter of eternal life to Jesus Christ. If you don't have faith in someone, if you don't believe in someone, if you don't trust someone, then what does that mean? It means you do the work that is required. I let my children mow the lawn with me these days, both of them. Philippa needs a little bit of extra push than Joshua does. But ultimately, I don't trust my children to mow the lawn on their own. I'm always there guiding, pushing the lawnmower there, surrounding them, watching out for them. It's a very dangerous piece of equipment, and they're still very young. I don't say to Joshua, okay, the lawn needs mowed, go out and do it. I don't trust him to do that at this stage. So what does that mean? It means I still do the work. I don't get to sit in front of the TV while he mows the lawn. I don't trust him to do so. So I still do the work. They come out and they push and they enjoy that and it's somewhat helpful, more of a hindrance than help in some respects, but they're there. But you couldn't say I trust them 
They may be helping to some extent, but I don't trust them because I'm still there doing the work. And you are not to treat Jesus Christ in the same way as I treat my children when it comes to eternal life. If you say to Jesus, oh, yes, yes, I can do it somewhat, but then you're there guiding, pushing, doing all the work, and he's there helping a little, then you're not trusting him. You're still depending upon your wisdom, your strength, when it comes to eternal life. If you trust someone, you let them do the job and you leave it in their hands. And so everyone, according to this text, this part of the scriptures, everyone needs to say to Jesus, I've examined death. I've seen that death comes to all men. I've seen that I face death myself and I'm helpless in the face of it. I've tried staying fit, but my body continues to ache and squeal in pain from time to time. And even when I'm trying to stay fit, which is one of the reasons I don't involve myself in too much fitness, it hurts too much. Being fit often gives you more injuries than it solves. And it doesn't prevent death. It doesn't matter how fit I am. It doesn't matter whether you're an Olympic athlete. How many Olympic athletes are in the grave today? They were helpless in the face of death, despite their levels of fitness. You may say, I've tried the right foods to Jesus, but my body keeps on having health issues. It doesn't matter what I eat, whether I eat fat and sugar, whether I eat vegetables only. I still find my body breaking down. And I've looked at modern medicine. I've looked at all the advances that are there. And I see that they haven't got a solution to death. They pour money into it, but people continue to die. And you also, as you look at the face of death and you reflect upon your own life, you see that you're not a good person, that you've tried to be good over the years. Each new year, you come up with New Year's resolutions, and each new year, you fail in those New Year's resolutions within the first few weeks, generally speaking. You see that in the face of death, you can't earn your salvation. You can't look to your own strength and that I'm a very good person. I did deserve eternal life. No, you see that you failed again and again. And so what are you to do? You're to do what Jesus says to do here, to raise your hands in utter helplessness, in defeat, and say, if I'm to live eternally, it has to be all of you, Jesus, because I can't do anything to solve my problem of impending death. You may be saying this morning, okay, but can't there be another way? Isn't there another bread of life that I can trust in? Does it have to be Jesus that is the way that is for eternal life? Is there another way? Can I trust in someone else? Yes, it may be by faith alone that we have eternal life, but surely I can trust in some other person. And that's where the text is very clear, that it says that Jesus is the bread of the life. Verse 35 says, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. The definite article is there, the word the, which indicates that there is no other. He doesn't say, I am a bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. And so there's only one type of bread that gives eternal life, and that is Jesus Christ. We, as a society, have lots of alternatives when it comes to bread. But we often prefer one type of bread to another. Last Sunday morning, I knew that 
the only type of bread I eat for breakfast was not, there wasn't much of it in the house. There was only one slice to be in fact. I knew from the night before that there was only one piece remaining. And so when I got up that morning, I had my coffee. I have a particular routine. I have a coffee and then half an hour later I have my cup of tea and breakfast. I have my toast. And I'm sitting there with my coffee and my son comes in and he asks, where's your bread, Dad? He was wanting to have breakfast himself. And I said, ah, Joshua, no, this morning, can you have something else? Generally speaking, yes, you can have my bread, but this morning there's only one piece left and I want it in about 15 minutes. I shouldn't have said that because as soon as I let him know that I was really after that one slice, he became even more eager to eat it. He smiled, he grinned, and he started to prowl around the kitchen looking for that one slice that I knew was there. And I tried to dissuade him from having it. I said, look, Josh, you eat all kinds of things for breakfast. You change every day. You have cereal, you have different types of bread. Come on. Daddy has one piece of bread. One type of bread is his bread. Can't you leave it for me? And I said to him as well, I was looking for all kinds of arguments, I said, it's an end piece. It's the crust. It's the end piece. And you don't like crust. Surely you can leave that piece for me. And I said, also remember, Joshua, that today is Sunday and Daddy's got to preach later today. He really needs his energy. And if he doesn't have that slice, what will he have? Lots of people will suffer later today if he doesn't have that piece of bread. And thankfully, he condescended and allowed me to have that piece of bread that day. But that's how we are to treat Jesus. We have to understand that he is the bread of life. If we want a particular experience of eternal life, then we need to have him and him alone. Because it's, it's bad with the translation in some respects, but it's probably not good English. But the way it says there in verse 35, it says, I am the bread of life. In the Greek, it literally is, I am the bread of the life. He is the bread of the life. If you want the eternal life that is to come, and not an alternate eternal life, which doesn't actually exist, if you want the eternal life, then you must have the bread. And so as I wanted the experience of eating my bread, I knew that I had to have that particular type of bread. And so if you want that eternal life, then you need to have that bread. And that's how we are to be with Jesus. We have to understand that there is no alternative. There is no other bread of life. There is only one, and it is Jesus. So you get the bread of life by coming to Jesus in faith, by looking to him and trusting in him, by handing your life over to him and saying, look, eternal life has to be all of you, Jesus. It has to be you that gives it to me. You have to do the work to achieve eternal life for me. But then you may ask, how is receiving that bread possible? How is it possible that I can just simply believe in Jesus and have eternal life? Well, the text actually tells us that something has occurred before anyone comes to Jesus, that something has occurred way back in time past. And what is that? Well, we receive the bread of life only because in the past, the Father has given us to the Son and the Son has been ready to accept us. And that is told to us in verse 37. Verse 37 of John chapter 6, look with me now. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. 
How can you come to the, to the Son? How can you take part in the bread of life? How can you believe in him? It's because the Father has given you to Jesus. The Father is God himself. Jesus is God as well, but we understand that God is three persons in the one Godhead. And so the Father gives you over to the Son. And so you can only believe in Jesus because something has happened beforehand. That the Father, God himself, has given you to Jesus Christ. It's kind of like when you get married and there's a bride. And what happens at the ceremony, generally speaking? The bride is given over by the Father to the groom. And that's what happens with us. God is our creator. He is the one who has made us. And he hands us over to Jesus. And so the only reason we can actually come to Jesus and be united with Jesus in faith and in one sense marry him, the Bible is very clear that that's what the church has done. Jesus is a groom. We are his bride. The only reason we can do that is because the Father has taken the initiative to then hand us over to the Son. And then something else has happened. The Son has been prepared to receive those who come to him. And we see that in verse 37 as well. It says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. See, you can come to people, but that doesn't mean that they will receive you. I don't like it when I have to go to a restaurant and you get to the doors. I don't book, generally speaking. And you get to the doors and you ask for a table and they say, have you got a booking? And I say no, and then they turn you away. I actually did it once at a Korean restaurant and I went along and we thought, you know, 6, 6 p.m., it's not going to be that, not going to be many people, most people eat at, at 7. We went along, we went to the doors and we said, can we get a table for two, please, my wife and myself? And they said, ah, oh, have you got a reservation? We said, no. They, said, they looked down the list in front of them and said, we've got nothing for you. And the place was empty. I looked around. There were tables everywhere, but they all had little re- reserved things on them. I was like, surely we'll be able to eat within half an hour. Surely we can have a table. No, I, I couldn't convince this woman at the door otherwise. I might have been more successful with another staff member, but we ended up having to go some, somewhere else. Just because you come to someone doesn't mean that they'll receive you. But the thing about Jesus is he always receives those who come to him. You do not need to book a table at the Bread of Life. The Bread of Life is always available. You come to him, he receives you. He never drives away anyone, the text says. And why is that? Why doesn't Jesus drive you away? Because the Father has willed that the Son will receive you. We read in verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus' will is to do God's will. And what is God's will? Verse 39 says, And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Father has willed that the Son will receive those who come to him and that the Son will keep those who come to him. And so if you come to Jesus, it's because God has given you to the Son and it's because the Son is willing to receive you. If the Son does not receive you, 
then he is no longer doing the Father's will. And Jesus always does the Father's will. If you read the New Testament, you read the Gospels, you see again and again that Jesus is always seeking to do the Father's will. So if you come to Jesus, it is because something has been done before you even approach him, before you trust in him, and that is that the Father has given you to the Son and the Son has prepared himself to receive you and keep you. This is a wonderful teaching of Scripture. Glorious Father, glorious Son, glorious Holy Spirit who draws us to the Son and through him we approach the Father because of what they have done for us. And do you realise then that this teaching here by Jesus proves the way of salvation, proves the truth of Christianity in a way that you may not have been expecting? Two weeks ago, I was doing my devotions in the morning, on a Tuesday morning, and I really believe it was Satan whispered in my mind as I was sitting there reading the Bible, Joel, how do you know that Jesus is the right way? I was sitting there and I was contemplating hell, and as I was contemplating hell, I started to think, how do I know I'm not going to hell? How can I know that Jesus is the right way? And for a few hours... This kept circulating in my mind. And then at about 11 o'clock that morning, as I was working on my sermon, it struck me with great force that Jesus has to be the only way because I am too sinful for there to be another way. My sin is so great that there is no other way of salvation, that the way that is taught to us here in verses 35 to 40 proves that Christianity is true. If I'm not saved by faith alone, as it's taught here, that simply by coming in faith to Jesus, then there is no alternative because I'm too sinful for it to be about my works. It has to be all of faith. Otherwise, I'm undone. And if I'm not saved by the bread of life, if it's by another way, then I'm too sinful for that way because only Jesus is the perfect man. He's the only one who ever lived a perfect life without sin. And so he is the only one who can actually pay for my sin at the cross. There is no alternative if there is no Jesus. And if I'm not saved by the Father giving me to the Son, then there is no alternative of salvation for me either because someone outside of me has to initiate my salvation because I am so bad that I won't actually be interested in Jesus unless the Father takes me and gives me to the Son. And if the son isn't willing to receive me, then there is no alternative because I'm too bad for anyone to receive me unless he is willing to do so. Anyone in their right mind would not receive Joel Radford in all his sin. But God, in his mercy and his grace, is willing to do so. That Jesus, because of the will of the Father, is willing to save me. See, Christianity has a profound and unique message to sinful men. Christianity tells you, you are so evil, you need to be forgiven by faith alone. Not by works, but by faith, by trusting alone, by handing the situation over to somebody else. Christianity says, you are so evil that you need to be forgiven by a perfect person alone. Nobody else will suffice, suffice. It has to be a perfect person, a person who has never sinned. Christianity says you are so evil, you need to be forgiven by someone giving you over to somebody else. 
that it has to be somebody else who initiates that, and that's the Father in heaven. Christianity says that you are so evil, you need to be forgiven by Jesus as one who accepts and keeps hold of you because God the Father has willed it. Not because you've willed it, but because the Father has willed it. You are too bad to have an influence upon Jesus to receive you. And so as we look at this text, it proves that Christianity is true. Because if it's not true, there is no alternative. There is no other religion that can offer you hope as the way Christianity does. So as a Christian, if you look at this text this morning, you may be troubled by the doctrine of God's sovereignty in salvation. You don't understand how for you to come, God had to initiate things first. He had to hand you over to Jesus and Jesus had to be willing to receive you. Yet you are responsible to come. See, this is the thing that's taught in Scripture. God is sovereign in you becoming a Christian, but then you also have been called to trust. God doesn't trust for you. You're responsible for coming. So how does that work? God, you can't come to God unless God gives you to Jesus, but then you are held responsible for not coming if you don't come. How does that work? Well, I confess that I don't fully understand the doctrine of predestination, which is what this is, and the sovereignty of God in salvation, and the responsibility of man. But I see a need for it. It's taught in Scripture, but I also see a need for it. If you focus enough on your own sin, you will see the need for God's sovereignty in your salvation. I realized that I was dead in my sins, and I needed someone to bring me to life. Someone outside of me to bring me to life. I couldn't initiate my own salvation, my own life. It had to be somebody outside of myself. People often like to say that Christianity is for those who need a crutch. I say that Christianity is for those who need an ambulance, a policeman, a fireman, a whole hospital ward for surgery for a new heart. If you understand how sinful you are, you don't have a problem with God's sovereignty because you realize that it's apart from your strength, you can do nothing. It has to be all of God handing you over to Jesus before you can come to him. But if you focus in on your own ability, if you think, oh, I'm not that bad, then you will have a problem with God's sovereignty. You will think, I don't need him to hand me over to Jesus. I can do it quite well on my own, thank you very much. So if you as a Christian struggle with this, I encourage you, look more at your own sinful self and you will start to see that although you can't understand the doctrine fully, you have a great need of it. You need God to bring you to life, to strengthen you. And if you are a Christian, then that has been the case for you. So the question is for you this morning, for all of us in this room, is how are you going to respond to this passage? We'll look at some of the responses from the crowd in coming weeks. They have more questions to ask Jesus. But ultimately, you can go two ways. First, you can puff yourself up in pride and reject Christ's offer to come to the bread of life. You can say, I don't need salvation through Christ alone, by faith alone, through God alone. I don't need Jesus to pay for my sins. I don't need Jesus to receive me. I don't need the Father to give me over to Jesus. I'm okay on my own terms. And that's, if you're going to take that path, then Christianity has nothing to offer you. 
Christianity has nothing to offer those who are righteous in their own eyes. If you think you're a good person, then Christianity has nothing for you. The alternative is you can humble yourself and say, yes, that's what I need. That Christianity has a message that I need desperately. I recognise I have done wrong against my fellow man, against the creation around me, against myself and against God himself. And I need eternal life. I need to be cleansed from my sin. And finally, someone has the boldness to tell me how bad I am. And it's Jesus Christ in this passage and in the rest of scriptures. That someone is finally honest with me and is upfront to say, you are evil, you have done wrong, you need help from outside yourself. Finally, someone is telling me the truth. My pop psychologist who keeps telling me to have good self-esteem is wrong. Because whenever I go after good self-esteem, it fails. And when I read books about self-help, they're wrong. I see that they're wrong now because I can't help myself. I can't lift myself up. I need someone outside me to do so. I can now see that other religions are wrong because they always strike, uh, they always stroke my pride. They always massage me and say, you can do some good works and you'll be okay. And I see they're wrong because I try to do good, but then I find the bad is still there. And it clearly outweighs the good that I do. And so you humble yourself before God and say, Jesus, you're the only solution for my evil heart. And if you do that, you will receive eternal life and you will be comforted. Christ comforts the comfortless. No one else in this world can comfort you in your sin as Christ comforts. Christ lifts the depressed in a way that no one else can lift the depressed in this world. Christ calms the anxious, the people who are constantly anxious about the things of this world. Christ can calm you when you understand that you have salvation through trusting in him. And Christ gives rest to the weary. If you are weary of working and working and working and trying to achieve a life of some meaning, of some purpose, when you come to Christ, he gives you rest. Because he says, it's no longer about you and your work, it's about me and what I've done. And you can take comfort in that and you can take rest in him. So if you've never done it before, I encourage you this morning, humble yourself before Christ and come to him today in faith. Come to him, look to him, believe in him and find eternal life. Let us come before God in prayer. Let's speak with him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching of Jesus Christ, which is so clear, that he is the bread of the life. There is no other way to have eternal life except through feeding on him. So, Lord, we pray that we would come to him, come to him afresh in faith, look to him and delight in him, knowing that despite our evil hearts, we have a new heart through Jesus Christ by faith, that he has cleansed us, through his work at the cross, and we now are right with you because of the bread of life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.